All right. Um, as Bob said, my name's Mike and I'll be reading the Bible. There's two passages and you can follow along on the screens or um, on your devices. Um, so the first passage this morning is from James chapter 1, verses 13 to 15. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. And the second passage today is from 1 Kings chapter 14. At that time, Abijah, son of Jeroboam, became ill, and Jeroboam said to his wife, Go, disguise yourself so you won't be recognised as the wife of Jeroboam. Then go to Shiloh. Ahijah the prophet is there, the one who told me I would be king over this people. Take ten loaves of bread with you, some cakes and a jar of honey, and go to him. He will tell you what will happen to the boy. So Jeroboam's wife did what he said and went to Ahijah's house in Shiloh. Now Ahijah could not see. His sight was gone because of his age. But the Lord had told Ahijah, Jeroboam's wife is coming to ask you about her son, for he is ill, and you are to give her such and such an answer. When she arrives, she will pretend to be someone else. So when Ahijah heard the sound of her footsteps at the door, he said, Come in, wife of Jeroboam. Why this pretense? I have been sent to you with bad news. Go tell Jeroboam this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I raised you up from among the people and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I tore the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to you. But you have not been like my servant David, who kept my commands and followed me with all his heart, doing only what was right in my eyes. You have done more evil than all those who lived before you. You have made for yourself other gods, idols made of metal. You have aroused my anger and turned your back on me. Because of this, I am going to bring disaster on the house of Jeroboam. I will cut off from Jeroboam every last male in Israel, slave or free. I will burn up the house of Jeroboam as one burns dung until it is all gone. Dogs will eat those belonging to Jeroboam who die in the city, and birds will feed on those who die in the country. The Lord has spoken. As for you, go back home. When you set foot in your city, the boy will die. All Israel will mourn for him and bury him. He is the only one belonging to Jeroboam who will be buried, because he is the only one in the house of Jeroboam in whom the Lord, the God of Israel, has found anything good. The Lord will raise up for himself a king over Israel who will cut off the family of Jeroboam. Even now this is beginning to happen. And the Lord will strike Israel so that it will be like a reed swaying in the water. He will uproot Israel from this good land he gave to their ancestors and scatter them beyond the Euphrates River. 
because they arouse the Lord's anger by making Asherah poles. And he will give up, give Israel up, because of the sins of Jeroboam has committed and caused Israel to commit. Then Jeroboam's wife got up and left and went to Terzah. As soon as she stepped over the threshold of the house, the boy died. They buried him and all Israel mourned for him, as the Lord had said through the, his servant, the prophet Ahijah. The other events of Jeroboam's reign, his wars and how he ruled, are written in the book of the annals of the kings of Israel. He reigned for 22 years and then rested with his ancestors, and Nadab, his son, succeeded him as king. Rehoboam, son of Solomon, was king in Judah. He was 41 years old when he became king, and he reigned 17 years in Jerusalem, the city the Lord had chosen out of all the tribes of Israel in which to put his name. His mother's name was Namah, and she was an Ammonite. Judah did evil in the eyes of the Lord. By the sins they committed, they stirred up his jealous anger, more than those who were before them had done. They also set up for themselves high places, sacred stones and Asherah poles, on every high hill and under every spreading tree. There were even male shrine prostitutes in the land. The people engaged in all the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. In the fifth year of King Rehoboam, Shishak, king of Egypt, attacked Jerusalem. He carried off the treasure of the temple of the Lord and the treasures of the royal palace. He took everything, including all the gold shields Solomon had made. So King Rehoboam made bronze shields to replace them and assigned these to the commanders of the guard on duty at the entrance to the royal palace. Whenever the king went to the Lord's temple, the guards bore the shields, and afterwards they returned them to the guard room. As for the other events of Rehoboam's reign and all he did, are they not written in the books of the annals of the kings of Judah? There was continual warfare between Rehoboam and Jeroboam, and Rehoboam rested with his ancestors and was buried with them in the city of David. His mother's name was Namah, she was an Ammonite, and Abijah, his son, succeeded him as king. Good morning. My name is Stephen, one of the ministers here. Um, some of my earliest memories are from when I was a, a kid and getting in trouble off my parents and trying to keep something hidden from them. Like when I was young, I, th- I think maybe three or four I remember my parents quizzing me and I was desperately trying to keep what I'd done hidden from them. Me and this other boy who lived in the street, we'd been playing robbers and so we did what robbers did, naughty stuff. We went to one of our neighbour's houses and uh, she had these window boxes there with plants in them and we pulled all the plants out and we did what robbers do, we put them in our gum boots and squished them. And then we went to another neighbour's house and she had one of those houses that were up on kind of stilts and you could go in underneath it. So we went in and where there was the lawnmower kept. So we tipped the petrol out, all out underneath the house. Lucky for her, we didn't have matches. Now when I got back home, I still remember the, the mental battle with my parents trying to keep it hidden. 
Because uh, what I didn't realise is they already knew about it because my neighbours had dobbed us in. Now, as I got bigger, I also got better at deceiving my parents. Another time, a, a few years later, I did actually manage to get my hands on some matches and burn a few of those in the house, but unfortunately, I, I left, or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, I left some evidence behind, holes in the carpet and burnt matches. And this time, I, I managed to hold out for a lot longer, but eventually, I couldn't deceive my parents because my sister dobbed me in. <laughs> But there were quite a few times that I did manage to deceive my parents. I I remember their exasperation. They'd say things like, well, the chocolate cake didn't just eat itself. But if you stayed calm, held your ground, you could deceive them. And then a couple of days later, it would all blow over and you'd be in the clear. And then as as kids become closer to becoming adults themselves, I I can talk about this because they're away at Redef camp at the moment, most of them. As they become closer to becoming adults themselves, sometimes deceiving parents actually involves a fair bit of self-deception as well. Like my sister one time, she stayed home when we all went away for the weekend and while we were gone, she had a party and somehow she thought she'd get away with it. But it was the stupidest attempt at deception I ever saw. There were cigarette holes in the carpet bottles in the bin and I I still remember my mum saying I just can't understand why they'd cut up the garden hose we explained that to her I always wondered what was my sister thinking thinking that she she could get away with deceiving mum and dad like that it just seemed so ridiculous to me and the truth was she was going through a a rough patch as you can tell and there was a fair bit of self-deception going on Now, deceiving parents, we've all been there. It's a bit hit and miss. It's possible sometimes. It's risky. And as the stakes get higher and higher, usually deceiving your parents goes hand in hand with self-deception as well. Today we come to a part of 1 Kings where we see King Jeroboam trying to deceive God, which just sounds so ridiculous so stupid and it makes you wonder what Jeroboam really thinks of God if he thinks this is even possible and yet at the same time as we look at him he really should make us stop and think are we so different are we ourselves completely open and brutally honest before God or is it possible that we too engage in a bit of self-deception this is our first point today we deceive ourselves if we think we can deceive God now remember we're we're looking at events in Israel's history from three nearly 3,000 years ago it's about 920 BC that's where we're up to we we've seen the kingdom united and at peace and amazing under Solomon And then we saw it come crashing down when Solomon abandoned God. And we saw the kingdom torn into two. And this map can kind of help you see what happened there. Israel in the north was one part and Judah down in the south. And so far in in these 14 chapters, we've only covered about 40 years. That's what we've covered so far. In these three chapters today, though, 
we cover about 60 years just in three chapters so things speed up massively and we we see things spiral downwards very quickly and in this downward spiral today we're going to see that like i said we just oh yep sorry that's um some of the kings there actually I'll, i'll keep that up there so you can kind of see what what kings we're talking about as we see these things we're going to see that we deceive ourselves if we we think we can deceive god and we'll see this in the reign of jeroboam from the northern kingdom you can see his name up there we're also going to see that we deceive ourselves if we think we're better off without god we see this down in the the southern kingdom in the reign of rehoboam we're going to see that we deceive ourselves if we if we think the problem is easily fixed and we see this in the reign of Asa, another southern king. And finally, we get to see that we deceive ourselves if we think we will get away with rejecting God. And we see this in the messy reign of all those northern kings you can see up there. So first of all, we deceive ourselves if we think we can deceive God. Remember, it was God who made Jeroboam king over Israel, the northern kingdom. And remember, God promised Jeroboam that if he obeyed him, he'd be with him. But Jeroboam, he didn't want that. Last week, we saw he led all Israel to sin by effectively creating idols for them to worship in the place of God. And God told Jeroboam how he felt about that through the prophet that we saw. But even then, Jeroboam didn't change his evil ways. But sometime later, we read today, Jeroboam's son gets sick. This is probably his oldest son, the one he hopes will become king after him. And he's so sick that it rattles Jeroboam. It's times like this in life that do rattle you, isn't it? It's times like this that really make you stop and and take stock. I remember when Evie, my daughter, was in the neonatal intensive care unit. It's like your world kind of shrinks down to just that one room where your child lies helpless and where you're powerless to do anything about it. Everything else in the world kind of fades in those sort of times. and It doesn't hold you like it once did. And times like that, they cause you to reassess your plans, your priorities, your life choices. And so we might hope that perhaps this could be the the situation that causes Jeroboam to turn back to God and to seek God and to seek his help. And it does cause Jeroboam to seek God, to seek his help, but in a really strange way. Look again at chapter 14, verse 2. Jeroboam said to his wife, Go, disguise yourself so you won't be recognized as the wife of jeroboam then go to shiloh ahijah the prophet is there it's such a strange plan jeroboam knows that ahijah is a prophet of god he he knows that he speaks for god because all those years ago he was the one who told jeroboam that he would become king but he also knows what's taken place between then and now God's word had, had come true for him, but he hadn't been true to God. And rather than face up to that, rather than be open and honest with God, 
He tries to deceive God. He hopes his his wife can pass as just an ordinary person, an ordinary parent. And it's like he hopes that with a gift he can get this man of God on side and get him to say that the boy will be fine. And so somehow get what he wants from God without himself having to face up to God. Can you see the the self-deception that's going on here? That on the one hand, Jeroboam knows God is powerful enough to hold the fate of his son in his hand. But on the other hand, he thinks he's able to deceive God and escape his notice. It's really quite impersonal when you think about it. It's quite impersonal, treating God quite impersonally. And because of that, it's personally offensive to God. Jeroboam wants the power of God without the person of God. He wants the gift without the giver. He wants what he wants without wanting to give any thought to what God wants. And he's deceived himself into thinking that he can relate to God in this way. Jeroboam, he might be a king from 3,000 years ago. But there are some things that never change about us people, aren't there? And I reckon we see this way of trying to relate to God all around us and If we're honest, we see it within ourselves too. When we sin against God and against people, what's our most natural reaction? Is it to be completely open and brutally honest with ourselves and with God and with the people that we've sinned against? It's not, is it? Our first and most natural reaction is secrecy. We cover up in lots of different ways what we've done. We tell ourselves it's not a big deal. We tell ourselves what's done is done. It's just best if we just move on now. It was understandable, justifiable. It wasn't as bad as what others do. It was deserved. It was natural. And if other people do know something about it, We try to find supporters who will accept and affirm our version of things. We blame the other person, even if they're the victim. We gaslight our own actions and motivations. It's not just Jeroboam who deludes himself and tries to delude God. It's every human who struggles to be completely open and brutally honest before God, themselves and others. You know, usually when someone tells me that they're struggling in their marriage, my heart just sinks at those moments. Not because they're struggling, that's normal. Not because they're telling me that that's kind of brave and healthy, actually. My heart sinks because it's often been my experience that people only get to that point of openness once they've made the decision that it's too late and nothing can be done. Not always. But too many times, that's been my experience. In other words, secrecy was their natural reaction. And they're now only being open because they're moving on emotionally, mentally, literally. That's why they're talking about it. And that's just one example of the way that self-deception and secrecy can play itself out in our lives. When we mess up, our hearts desperately 
clutch at secrecy as the solution. And our hearts are inclined to do this even with God. And we don't literally dress up and put on a fake moustache. But in many ways, our attempts to delude God are just as ridiculous. And we see this in what happens with Jeroboam's wife. She's sent by Jeroboam to Ahijah the prophet. And what she doesn't realise is Ahijah is blind anyway. So her costume, as good as it may have been, is just completely wasted on him. But even if he could see, her deception is a waste of time because God sees all. She thinks she's sent by Jeroboam, but actually in all of this, God is sending Ahijah with a word to Jeroboam. And God's word is that Jeroboam has not done what has been right in God's eyes. He'd hoped that God wouldn't see, but God has seen. And listen to what God says he's seen in 14 verse 9. He says, you have done more evil than all who live before you. You have made for yourself other gods, idols made of metal. You have aroused my anger and turned your back on me. Jeroboam, he's been worse than Rehoboam, Solomon, David, Saul. He's turned his back on God and he's refused to turn back to God. He's caused others to turn their back on God. And can you hear the sadness in God's words here? His anger has been aroused. Anger is not God's natural way of being. It's not at all his preferred way of being. But it is his necessary response to our evil. And our self-delusion, refusing to face the truth, rightly arouses his anger. Hijah tells the woman to tell Jeroboam that his actions, it's his actions that have caused God to bring disaster on his family. His family, we read before, is, is rotten there. They're like dung, it says. They, they stink. And they will all be destroyed and left unburied. Except for one. Ahijah says to the mother, As for you, go back home. When you set foot in your city, the boy will die. All Israel will mourn for him and bury him. He is the only one belonging to Jeroboam who will be buried. Because he is the only one in the house of Jeroboam in whom the Lord, the God of Israel, has found anything good. There's a complexity to God's actions here. Sometimes we make the mistake of missing the depth that there is to God and his actions. We think his ways are just like our ways. But God holds a far bigger picture in mind than we ever could. And this boy, although he dies, he isn't dishonoured or abandoned by God like the rest of Jeroboam's family. Whether he's being true to what his name means, my father is Yahweh. Whether he didn't follow his earthly father's ways, we just don't know. But there is something in this child that pleases God. And we don't know why God would allow this one to die while allowing the, the rest to live, at least for now. But there's worse things than dying. And having us, having seen more of the picture than they knew back then, we know that to die safe in the hands of God 
is actually to know life eternally. And she's confronted with all this. And what do you want? What do you want to see from Jeroboam's wife? What do you want her to do? What do you want Jeroboam to do? Don't you just wish that they'd be rattled enough to admit the truth? Shaken enough to throw off the deception? Don't you just wish that they'd, they'd fall before God with a broken heart, completely open and brutally honest? But that never happens. We see her march back home, maybe not believing the prophet, maybe angry with God for not giving her what she wanted. But what we don't ever see is Jeroboam or her turn back to God. We see God hold his hand even at the city gate, waiting. That's when he said he'd act. But as her foot falls on the threshold of her home, her heart is still not broken before God. And the fate of her son is sealed and he dies. Now at this point, the pace of the book of 1 Kings picks up quite a lot. And our pace is going to pick up quite a lot as well. The book now jumps from Israel in the north, up the top there, down to Judah in the south. And we also jump back in time. This keeps happening in the book. You jump from north to south and you jump around in time. We jump back now to the start of Jeroboam's reign, where we see in his reign that we deceive ourselves if we think we're better off without God. Now remember Jeroboam, the north king, he became king by breaking away from Rehoboam's rule, the south king. And remember, we've already seen that Rehoboam, he's not a great king. Look at how his, his reign is described here in 1421. He was 41 years old when he became king and he reigned 17 years in Jerusalem, the city the Lord had chosen out of all the tribes in Israel in which to put his name. His mother's name was Neymar. She was an Ammonite. Now, two things are highlighted here for us as his reign is, is introduced and summarized. Rehoboam reigns in Jerusalem which we're reminded is the city where the Lord had chosen to put his name. We're being reminded that, that Jerusalem, the temple and David, they're all a part of God's great promises that he gave to David. And a small part of us wonders if maybe Rehoboam could get things back on track and undo the mess of his father Solomon. But then the very next thing we read is that his mother's name was Neymar, she was an Ammonite. And in verse 31, at the end of his, his reign, it, that is repeated for us word for word. This is one of the key women who would have led Solomon astray from worshipping God. She would have led him to worship other gods, including what we read earlier on a few chapters ago, Moloch, the detestable god of the Ammonites. She would have led Solomon to worship a god that required the sacrifice of your children in the fire. And so under Rehoboam, we see in 14.22 that Judah did evil in the eyes of the Lord. By the sins they committed, they stirred up his jealous anger more than those who were before them had done. And for the 17-year the reign of Rehoboam, that's quite a long time really, for that 
reign, the writer of 1 Kings records just one event. He records how Shishak attacked Jerusalem. Shishak, or Shishonk is how it's normally put in English, is a figure that we read about in history outside of the Bible as well. He takes all the treasures of the temple that Solomon had built. And just like that, its glory, remember all that glory, is gone. And so what does Rehoboam do? Well, he doesn't come before God completely open and brutally honest. He doesn't turn back to him. Instead, he replaces the gold things with bronze things and carries on like nothing ever happened. This is like, you know, imagine someone broke into your house, stole all your plates and your cups and your knives and forks. I don't know why they would, but just imagine that they do. And you can't replace them with real ones. So you buy disposable plastic plates and plastic knives and forks and plastic cups. And so you sit there eating your dinner night after night like that, refusing to admit that it's miserable. That's what we see in the reign of Rehoboam. As a, as a boy, he saw the glory of the temple as it was dedicated to God. He heard his father's great prayer that whoever turns back to God, whatever they'd done, God would lift them up and restore them. But like his father, like his mother, he turns away from God. And even though he's, he's clearly not better off, he won't admit it. And so often in our world today, we're like Rehoboam. We try to get on, our, on with our lives without God and just accept each new dark reality that comes along. And we tell ourselves it's better without him. It's like we're eating from plastic plates with plastic knives and forks. And we kid ourselves that this is better, that we're free. We're liberated. We're living it up. But like Rehoboam, we deceive ourselves if we think we're better off without God. But you know, even in Rehoboam's life, we still see God's mercy. Shishak doesn't kill him and replace him with some other king. We still see God's mercy because of God's promises to David. And so we hope that Rehoboam's son, great-grandson of David, might be someone different. But he's not, we read, Abijah, he's just like his father. He only raised for three years and we're seeing things spiraling pretty bad here. We've had Solomon, a bad king. We've had Rehoboam, we've had Abijah. But then finally, we get a good king in Judah. Asa is a good king who gets rid of the idols and gets rid of the, the pagan priests from the land. He even deposes his dodgy grandma and in 15 verse 14, we read, his heart is fully committed to the Lord all his life. But despite how great he is, even still, he, he doesn't manage to get rid of the high places in Judah. And what we see in his reign is that we deceive ourselves if we think the problem is easily fixed. One good generation, even two, is not enough to undo the problem of rejecting God. Neither Asa nor his son Jehoshaphat could get things back on track for good. The problem of turning away from God runs too deep. And Asa and Jehoshaphat are just too limited. 
And eventually what we see beyond our passage today, but we see that Jehoshaphat's son, Jehoram, turns things back even worse than they ever were before. We deceive ourselves if we think the problem is easily fixed. Now at this point in the book, we leave Judah in the south and we return to Israel in the north. And again, we we jump back in time. Jeroboam dies after Asa has been king in the south for two years and Jeroboam's son, Nadab, becomes king. But he follows the evil ways of his father and so what follows is this terrible, terrible period in the life of Israel. A man who's kind of appropriately named Basha kills Nadab and becomes king and immediately kills all of Jeroboam's family. And we're confronted with two things that are hard to hold together but need to be held together. On the one hand, we read in in chapter 15 verse 29, as soon as he began to reign, he killed Jeroboam's whole family. He did not leave Jeroboam anyone that breathed, but destroyed them all according to the word of the Lord, given through his servant Ahijah the Shilonite. This happened because of the sins Jeroboam had committed and had caused Israel to commit and because he aroused the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel. So on the one hand, this is because of the word of the Lord. And yet, later God's word comes to Basha that he also is going to face God's anger. And look at 16 verse 7. Moreover, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Jehu, son of Hanini, to Basha and his house, because of all the evil he had done in the eyes of the Lord, arousing his anger by the things he did, becoming like the house of Jeroboam, and also because he destroyed it, because he destroyed the house of Jeroboam. These awful things, they happen because of their sin and their refusal to turn back to God, and so his judgment on them, and yet there's a complexity to this, because God is not happy with the actions of those who carry out his judgment. And we find these two things hard to hold together. But God doesn't. God uses their evil actions for his own good purposes. God can do that. He can use evil without being tainted by it. If God didn't use evil, if God didn't use what's done in greed and selfishness, and turn it for his good, then this world would be completely dark and completely without hope. But God's not like that. He's good, he's powerful, and he's unapologetic about being personally engaged in this world. He is jealous when people turn away from him, angry when they destroy themselves and others in their their pride and stupidity and self-deception and he refuses to wash his hands of us even in our mess he's there and he turns even our worst things towards a better purpose God warned Jeroboam that his actions would be the destruction of his own family and of God's family Israel but Jeroboam wouldn't listen And his actions created the context for Basha to act like this. And Basha's actions created the context for Zimri to act like he did. And Zimri, he didn't just stop with Basha's family. 
In seven days, he managed to wipe out his family, his relatives, and even his friends. The whole northern kingdom is a mess because they wouldn't come back to God openly and honestly. And their story shows us that we deceive ourselves if we think we'll get away with rejecting God. The consequences of rejecting God will eventually catch up with us. And if we don't get what we deserve in this life, I can confidently tell you, you will one day face the true judge of the world. We all will. But sadly, we're a world full of experts in self-deception, thinking that we can get away with rejecting God. Now, at this point in their history, there's finally a release valve. Zimri, who killed Basha, he's surrounded by the army who aren't happy with what he's done. And he sees no escape, so he burns down the palace around himself. And so the commander of the army, Omri, becomes king. And because he, he doesn't become king by killing his rival and their, their families and friends and pets and who knows what else, it, it creates a circuit breaker. And so relative stability is kind of restored to Israel. And Omri, he's quite a successful king, actually. Again, even making his mark in history outside of the Bible. But the writer of One Kings, he doesn't care about all that because Omri fails in the only area that really matters. He doesn't learn from the mess of Zimri or Basha or Jeroboam. We read in in 16 verse 25 that he sinned more than all before him. This is becoming a recurrent pattern. And his son is the infamous King Ahab. And we read about him in verse 30. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. Ahab takes the downward spiral to completely new depths. But that's next week's episode. So we'll leave it there. Now, we've seen a lot in the story of God's people today. We've seen that we deceive ourselves if we think we can deceive God. We deceive ourselves if we think we're better off without God. We deceive ourselves if we think our deepest problem is easily fixed. We deceive ourselves if we think that we will get away with rejecting God forever. We've seen a lot, but I want to finish by just quickly thinking about two things that this means for us practically. First, It means if you've never turned to God, really turned to God, absolutely abandoned living for yourself and turned to Him 100%, completely open, brutally honest, then don't be deceived, not even by yourself. You face His jealous anger. doesn't matter if you've been interested in God doesn't matter if you've been a fan of God of sorts. That's not turning to Him. He's the kind of God who wants you to turn to Him no matter what you've done. He's waiting, giving you every opportunity. Jesus' death and resurrection says to you that He wants you to turn back to Him, to turn your life over to Jesus as Lord and Saviour. And at all sorts of moments in your life, He's been there prodding you. Right now, he's still giving you the opportunity. 
take it. Because if you've not turned back to God, you're walking yourself away from the source of every good thing, the source of life itself. You are choosing to bring destruction on yourself, just like Jeroboam chose that. Second, this says to us today, just because we have turned to God, it doesn't mean we're completely free from the danger of self-deception. Why not? We too can think that secrecy is the solution. But it's not. Being completely open and brutally honest before God is always what we need. Recently, I I caught up with a bloke um, who surprised me because he just said plainly to me, I've sinned against God massively in the past. And I admitted it to him. He was open and honest. It kind of took me by surprise. It was refreshing and it was powerful. A while, a while back, a couple of years ago, when we were in the first season of The Crown in 1 Samuel, in 1 Samuel 7, there was this moment where all Israel turned back to the Lord. They grieved their sin and they were open and honest before God. And seeing their example, one of us here felt convicted about their own lives and admitted to God and then to their wife that porn had been controlling their life. That was powerful. And in all honesty, I reckon that saved their marriage. That kind of openness is powerful and it's healing. Now, God already knows, of course, we can't deceive him. The power lies in the fact that it changes how we think about God when we are open and honest. We stop thinking God is the problem. And we start looking for the answer to our problems in the one and only place that they can be found. In the powerful, burning, jealous love that our God has for us. You see, when we turn to God in openness and honesty and in need, His anger is not against us. It's not directed against us when we turn to Him. His anger is directed against the mess of this world. At the sin that clings to us and is trying to pull us down, trying to turn our heart away from Him. It's the powerful, burning, jealous love of God that took Jesus to the cross. That He would rather die in our place than abandon us in our need. We can come to God completely open, And brutally honest because he has that kind of heart for us. And he has the answers that we need. Let's come before him in prayer now. Father, you see our hearts. They are completely open before you. And yet, Lord, so often we deceive ourselves and we try and deceive you by trying to hide our hearts from you. Lord, help us to turn to you, to come before you in openness and honesty, seeing that you're not the problem and that the solution is not hiding things from you and others, that you are the answer that we need, that your jealous, burning love for us 
you turn to use on our behalf in Jesus dying on the cross in our place so that we would never face the consequences of our sin and that one day we will not even face the reality of it that sin will have no hold on us whatsoever because of what Jesus has done Lord help us to step into the light and to see Jesus and his love for us the way that we should and to cling to him only we pray in his name Amen